Trinity Bible Church. On the web at wagp.net. Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859, or on your Altel cellular phone, Star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you're a first-time listener, we meet for the next hour and discuss the only book God ever wrote. We call it the Holy Bible. If you have a question as you've been studying Scripture or about uh, Christianity in general or some specific issue that you're facing uh, in your personal life or ministry, all you need to do is pick up the phone and call us, and by God's grace, we will do the best we can to help you. Again, the number locally is 525-1859. Our toll-free number for our Internet listeners is one the call letters, WAGP. 980. Or you can email us here directly into the studio. The email address is tbl for the Bible line, tbl at net. If you do call in, we always give live callers priority. Uh, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question, and we're always happy to receive it in that fashion as well. As always, Rick, it's good to be here today. It is indeed, Pastor. And uh, we had a couple of questions left over from Last Tuesday, uh, which was Election Day, the first caller said they knew there'd be many people who consider themselves evangelical Christians who were going to vote in favor of a president who is not only pro-abortion but voted for late-term abortion, which is a terrible, depraved act. And uh, we now have perspective in that the percentage has been released, and it appears that more than 6 million people who consider themselves evangelical born-again Christians voted uh, in favor of the current administration's position. Uh, if we are all filled with the same Holy Spirit, how can we be so far apart on moral issues? Because not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of God, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. There are many, many people who profess to know Jesus Christ as their Savior, but they don't really know what that means. They don't understand it. Some understand it only in the mind and has never reached the heart. In the parable of the sower, Jesus addresses such issues where he describes a man who goes out and sows seed. If you know the parable, he describes four kinds of soil. There's only one kind of soil you want to be on, and that's the last soil. That's the soil that describes a person who's saved in the varying degrees of fruit, 30, 60, 100-fold, as Matthew adds. But on the second soil, he notes that there are some who receive the word with joy. They get excited. They believe for a while. It's only intellectual. And so sometimes in the New Testament, when you see the word believe, it's very important you look at in the context of what's described. In John 8, he speaks of those who had believed him, not believed in him, but believed him. Uh, Yet uh, Jesus will later say of the exact same people, 
you are of your father, the devil. You do the deeds of your father and so forth. Uh, They had only an intellectual ascent like Simon the Sorcerer in Acts 8. So it's not surprising that there are many who would say they are born again who have no problem with abortion. Uh, you know, it's, it's really, it's a, it's a sad day in America uh, when people say and seemingly have no problem with uh, voting for someone who endorses abortion. In your right, our president, when he was a senator, uh, was in support of uh, late-term abortions and partial birth abortion. You know what partial birth abortion is? Up till one day before a mother wants to deliver her baby, if she decides she wants to have an abortion, the physician goes in after he's injected her with a saline solution. Then he goes in with an instrument. He crushes the skull, begins to remove the body part by part, and kills the baby. How how could anyone say that that's okay? How could Bill Clinton say that was okay? That's an evil, wicked, Canaanite type of practice. Uh, how can we say that uh, homosexuality is fine? You know, the president of Hobby Lobby, which is a great organization, uh, a kind of a craft store in the South. We have a similar one called Michael's. Um, but Hobby Lobby, the president, was just a fine man. He's a very, very godly man. I remember when my son was at Liberty University, he had bought a, a Swiss telephone company uh, that had gone out of business, but the building was for sale, 800,000 square feet. That's a huge building right next to uh, Liberty University. And he bought it and then gave it to Liberty University. I mean, a deeply committed Christian man. Well, you know, he's really upset because now under Obamacare, he has to, by law, to provide uh, for some of the things in the Obamacare that violates people's consciences. And he doesn't want to do that. Now, as uh, churches, we had to fill out a form in the last two months saying that we wouldn't do it, and we are given a religious exception. Uh, So that's not a problem, at least right now. Um, But listen, the Catholic Church has been confronted on this issue, and now Christian businessmen, they're going to have to face this issue. And what's going to happen? Uh, We haven't seen anything yet. And some of the people who naively voted for the current administration probably before these four years are up, will be weeping and realizing how foolish and what an evil, evil, evil administration we have now ruling our country. We should pray for our president. We should pray for our vice president, both who hold similar positions. But what they are doing is wicked, and it will destroy this nation. God help us. May the people of God speak up and do what's right and stand for that which pleases the Lord. Let's go to our next question, Rick. All right, indeed. Uh, We have a live caller. We always give live callers a preference, so let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Great. Thank you for taking my call. Um, Pastor, I I wonder if you would just talk a moment about uh, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God and what the difference is between the two. Um, I just became aware this morning. I was thinking uh, my mind is filled with so many small and insignificant thoughts that have nothing to do with God, and I realize I need to um, take those thoughts captive and start to think more about uh, helping people think more kingdom thoughts. But then I started to realize I don't even uh, really know what the kingdom of God is. 
Well, there's no there's no difference in Scripture between the kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven. They're used uh, simultaneously. One tool that would be nice to have, you can probably download it into your computer because there's so many concordances out there that are for free. You know, in your traditional concordance, you could only uh, look up a single word like kingdom. So uh, I'll just turn here to the back of my Bible to give you an example. I was wanting to do that. And so this is just a very limited, limited concordance that they have. But they list the word kingdom, and there's about maybe 15 references. If you looked up in the uh, Strong's Concordance, it would give you every usage in the Old Testament, every usage in the um, New Testament. And so um, it's very limited, but you can only look up one word, kingdom. Now you could look up the word God, you could look up the word kingdom, but you couldn't look up the phrase kingdom of God. What's really nice now with a computer concordance, and again, if you have access to a computer, go online, type in, you know, computer concord- free computer concordances, and a whole bunch of them are going to pop up if you don't have some kind of Bible software already. And you can do searches on phrases. So you could do a search on a phrase, kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. Or you can do searches on phrases that are in close proximity to one another like uh, kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven, close to each other. And that will give you even another avenue in which to look. And what you will discover when you see the usage in the New Testament is that sometimes in the same, within a sentence or two, Jesus will note the kingdom of God, and then the next breath he'll, he'll note the kingdom of heaven. And they're used interchangeably of the same place. So then we are asking really a more, more important question, what is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of heaven? Because we are to live by kingdom principles. And of course, the kingdom parables are found in Matthew chapter 13. And that's a great study in and of itself to understand how God's current kingdom is working. But bottom line is Jesus said, uh, my kingdom is not of this world. And someday, of course, the kingdoms of this world will give heed and honor to the one true Lord of Lord and King of all kings. And God's kingdom will be acknowledged. Some will be forced to acknowledge it, not because they want to, but every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And so as kingdom people, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught that we are to live a different kind of of lifestyle. We are to be a different kind of people. Um, we are not to be like the folks of this world who have a TLO, a this life only perspective. We are to invest and focus on things that are eternal. Uh, Paul says the things that are seen are temporal. The things that are not seen are eternal. And so when you take all the air out of the balloon, I have a whole message on this in our Back to Basics series. And if you go online to searchthescriptures.org, I walk through kingdom principles and the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. And you might want to listen to that message, but it's entitled Developing an Eternal Perspective. When, When you take all the air out of the balloon, you discover four things will last for all of eternity. God, God's unchanging, he's eternal, no beginning or end. His word, his word is eternal because it represents who he is. Uh, The grass uh, withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord abides forever. God's word and all his truth is eternal. Angels actually are created uh, beings, but when they were created like humans, they're created for eternity and people. So everything you own, everything I own, 
someday in the end will be owned by someone else. And in the very end, it will be consumed with fire. God's going to take all of planet Earth and burn it into oblivion. There'll be nothing left. And then he'll create a new heaven and a new earth. And so that focus causes us to think a little bit differently. There's nothing wrong with having things in this life and enjoying things in this life. First uh, Timothy 6 says that God has given us all things to enjoy. So if God has given you something, uh, he's given it to you to enjoy. But on the other hand, we shouldn't hold on to things too tightly. Uh, we need to hold them very, very loosely. He warns us that those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. And he said, really, if we have food and covering with that, we ought to be content. Many people in the world today just don't have some of those things. And we complain, though having an abundance of those things in America, we complain about the things that we don't have. And he, of course, he says the love of money is not the root, but it's not articular, a root of all sorts of evil. And so he tells us to flee from these things, from things like loving money and pursuing the temporal only, and that we are to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, that we're to fight the good fight of faith, that we're to take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, the confession that we make at our baptism. And so Paul charges Timothy in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession that he too is to live with that kind of perspective. And if we are rich, he says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches because they are passing away. Don't live for them only. So what does it boil down to? Well, you've got to ask yourself, am I investing in things that are truly eternal? And there are many things that take on eternal value. Uh, there are many people listening to me who are at work and they're in the truck or in the car or they're able to have a radio on while they're doing whatever it is they're doing. And when we do our work with excellence, uh, that's rewarded. Uh, Paul speaks of that, for instance, in Colossians. Do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Uh, in the context of that phrase, it's dealing with uh, slaves or maybe a modern application would be employees as they deal with their employers, that we don't do it by way of eye service, just what the boss can see, but we serve the boss, the company, as if we were serving Jesus Christ himself. And so that takes on eternal value because Christ is represented well by the believers. And I know Christians who do their work in a shoddy fashion. And what a terrible testimony their work, their company, their business is when it's not done with anything uh, but excellence. Uh, when we share our faith and we attempt to win people to Christ, that takes on eternal value. Just the attempt God looks at. Uh, God uses us in different capacities. Sometimes we're involved in sowing seed. Sometimes we're involved in harvesting seed. Uh, sometimes uh, we're involved in both. But, you know, again, if people are the only thing that lasts for eternity, the people who are in our neighborhood, the people who are around, do we see them with a kingdom perspective? God looks at our spiritual gifts and how we use them in the local church. First uh, Peter 4, uh, someday God is going to evaluate your spiritual gifts and talents and acquired skills 
in how you use them in serving God's people in a local church. There are many people who blow off the local church or they come if it's convenient. And I tell people, listen, if everyone in the church lived the way you would, you lived and you gave and you served, we wouldn't have a church. Uh, So again, an eternal perspective, listen to that message. I think it would be very, very helpful. We've got another caller that's waiting, Rick. So let's go to them. And I appreciate that last caller. What an excellent question. Indeed. Thank you for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Yes, Rick. Uh, Pastor Carl, this is Dan. I have been studying in St. John chapter 8, verse 51, where Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my sayings, he shall never see death. And I've, I've taken my strongs and studied those words out. And it says death, if I'm not mistaken, could be taken literally or figuratively. Uh, could you help me with that? And I'll hang up and listen. Great question. Let me uh, <clears throat> let me just back it up into the broader context. I actually already referenced uh, this chapter uh, this morning with the first uh, question that, that came in. There are people, indeed, who say they are believers, but they are not truly genuine believers. And so as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. There were definitely some who had come to genuine faith. And then he says in verse 31, Jesus therefore was saying to those Jews who had believed him. Now, some translations very loosely say believed in him, but the um, preposition in is not present. So the New American Standard is most precise here. It just says those who had believed him. But even if you didn't read the Greek New Testament, you would know by the context that he's describing a lost person, though it is said that they believed. And so Jesus said, if you abide or you continue in my word, then you're truly disciples of mine and you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. So the word disciple, of course, in the New Testament is not always used of a genuine convert. Sometimes, as in John 6, he describes a great number of disciples. The word mathetes just means a learner. They were learning from Christ. There were disciples of Plato who learned from Plato. And there are all these people who were learning of Christ. And, of course, in John 6, where he gives the bread of life discourse, uh, the people are there because, man, the miracles are great and the food's good and this is really something. Uh, But when Jesus begins to speak spiritual truth, they leave in droves. And when it's all done and finished, there's only a handful of people left. And he says to them, do you want to go away too? Uh, And of course, Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Um, And again, there were some true disciples and then some people who were not. And so it is here. He said, if you abide in my word, then you're truly disciples of mine, genuine disciples. Why? Because when a person is converted, there is a desire to follow the word of God, uh, to persevere in truth. You're not saved by perseverance. Some people have taken verses like from the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, and in verse um, 13, Jesus said, but the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. Now, again, the context, if you read Matthew 24 really carefully, the parallel between Matthew 24, 3 to 14, and Revelation 6 is just stunning. And then 15, 
all the way through 28, again, is stunning uh, because it fits really what is going to happen during the time frame of the Great Tribulation, the middle point being in verse 15 where the abomination of desolation takes place. And, of course, we know during this time frame in human history, it's going to be the hardest time ever for a believer to follow Christ, because to follow Christ for most people will ensure their death. And so in the Revelation, you see this great multitude of people who had been beheaded. Their heads had been cut off because they refused to bow and worship the Antichrist and acknowledge him. But Jesus is saying, listen, a true believer will persevere to the end. He will endure. You're not saved by perseverance, but if you are saved, you will persevere. And that's the same truth that Jesus is bringing out here. If you abide in my word, you're followers of my word, you're giving evidence of conversion. He's not saying this is how you're converted. He's talking about what happens when you are converted. Then you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. And of course, they say free. What do you mean free? We're Abraham's offspring. Uh, We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you shall become free? Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin, and the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. If therefore the son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. I know that you're Abraham's offspring, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. Uh, his truth, his teaching had not found a home in their heart. I speak the things which I have seen with, with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. (laughs) They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said, ah, if you were Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. If you were a believer, like the father of the faithful, as he's called, as the friend of God, as he's called in the Bible is indeed, then you would live like Abraham. Abraham was a true, genuine convert, and true conversion results in a lifestyle of faith, a lifestyle of obedience. But as it is, he said, you're seeking to kill me, a man who's told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You're doing the deeds of your father. Oh, they throw it at him. Well, we weren't born of pornea. We have one father, even God. We weren't born of fornication. Jesus, you know, you're here because, uh, you know, Mary fornicated. And she got pregnant out of wedlock during betrothal before the relationship had been consummated. What a, what a blatantly evil thing to say about Mary, who carried the Lord Jesus. Jesus said to them, if you were, if God were your father, you would love me. And I proceeded forth and have come from God. And I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It's because you, you cannot hear my word. And then he says, and again, remember, these are people who believed him. But again, it's intellectual only. They had only given intellectual assent. He said, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. And so the Jews then in verse 48, and context is everything. When you study a verse, don't get lost in a verse all by itself without missing the context. The Jews answered and said to him, 
do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? I mean, good night. What, what a put down that was. The Samaritans were despised people uh, by the Jewish people because they were viewed as traitors. They were half Jewish and half Gentile. And so they basically, being racist of sorts, call him a Samaritan, and they say he has a demon. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste of death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered. So follow the flow here. He is saying, I'm not a liar like you say. I don't have a demon like you say. The fact is, is that you are like your father, the devil. You're trying to do the things and acts that the devil do. You lie about me. You're making up stuff that is fabricated to like the devil who's a murderer and inspires people to murder. You are doing your deeds in that of the devil and that you want to kill me. And so he makes it really clear. I don't seek my glory. There's one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. And again, this is very similar to what Jesus said when he had an encounter in John 11. Uh, If you remember on that particular day, um, Lazarus, when he arrived at the home, uh, was dead. Mary and Martha We're weeping and crying. This is just a matter of days before the crucifixion, the last gigantic miracle. And um, anyway, Jesus said to them, um, let me just read it to you. He said, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sake that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And so, of course, they go to the graveyard, and he's consoling them along the way. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother shall rise again. Martha says, well, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And so Jesus said and says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe that? So there is a sense, if we genuinely receive the Lord Jesus Christ, we will never die. We will never meet death in its uh, judgment, death in its, uh, all, of, all of the sad things that are surrounding death in the lake of fire. And I believe that that's what the Lord is referring to here when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Why? Because for the believer to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And of course, there's as much hope for the body as there is for the soul. The Jewish people don't understand. They're not thinking in terms of spiritual terms, but only physical terms. Well, what do you mean? You know, uh, you have a demon. Uh, Abraham, he died. The prophets also, they didn't have demons. They're far greater than you, Jesus. And yet those men died. What do you mean? 
And again, Jesus said, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste of death. Why? Because if you keep his word, if you abide in his word, you're showing that you're a children of Abraham, that you are genuinely converted, that you have the faith that Abraham had, and that therefore you will have eternal life. And so that's the flow of it, and I think that's where he's going. Great question. I have a sermon on that, by the way. If you go to searchthescriptures.org, all of the Gospel of John is there uh, up for your uh, perusal. And if you click on the uh, tab that relates to this section of Scripture, I, I go into a lot more detail, spend an hour on it. So anyway, I took about six minutes. Let's go to the next question. All right, we've got another live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Yes, thanks for calling. How can I help? Yeah, my question has to do somewhat with the first question that you uh, answered. It has to do with political activism in the church, the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. I... I uh, I decided I, I decided to ask this question after the election because I didn't want it to be interpreted as that I had that I have a political agenda. I was trying to make a political statement. Okay. But uh, could you? In uh, my concern, let me say this uh, at the beginning. My concern is with the body of Christ, our mission, and our unity. And so my question is: uh, What are the biblical bases for Christian pastors or leaders? Uh, in in that political campaigning, uh, telling Christians under the care how to vote in an election. Now I've seen this from the, I've heard this from the right and the left. Mm. So you know I'm not talking politics here. I hear you. Okay. I hear you. Right. Well, it's a great question. So let me see if I can respond to it. We want to be careful as pastors. Let me just say first of all, legally, a pastor can get up and endorse a candidate if he wants to. Uh, that's perfectly legal. Um, Dr. Falwell had demonstrated when he was alive about five years ago that a church has never, ever lost its tax-exempt status for a pastor or even the church for endorsing a candidate. Uh, This past year, some pastors wanted to uh, put some steel into that uh, statement that Dr. Falwell made, and uh, I think there was over a 1,000 of them who officially came on and said, this is who I am voting for, this is whom I am endorsing. Uh, with that said, uh, none of them, not one, uh, were challenged by the IRS because it's their legal right. And by the way, even if, it, if there was some law in the books from uh, a practical point of view, a lot would not want to challenge it because um, both parties have done a lot of campaigning in churches and they see it as an avenue in which to get out their message. Here's where I think we need to be careful. I think we don't want to present ourselves in such a way that if someone, say, is a Republican, uh, they come to a church and they sense they're only welcomed if they are of a particular party or if someone's a Democrat and they come to a church and they sense they are only welcomed if they are of, of of a particular party. Because, again, if the church is trying to reach people for Christ, think about this now. If that's what we're trying to do, among other things, to win the lost, and a church is labeled in a certain format only, then they're going to lose an opportunity to win a lot of people. I mean, think about a person today who has no problem with the homosexual Romans 1 lifestyle. I mean, 
it's absolutely amazing to me that the Democrat Party, first of all, left God out of its official platform. They realized, well, we better put him back in uh, because we're going to be in trouble if we don't. It's absolutely amazing to me that they officially, for the first time ever in the history of the party, endorsed the Romans One lifestyle. That was brand new to to this 2012 platform. Never before. Now they had advocated, you know, things, but they had never included it before in their platform. Something that God calls an abomination. Uh, it's incredible. And, and third, of course, they are in favor of killing the unborn under, quote-unquote, the rights of a woman. Now, if I'm a lost person, I want abortion because abortion allows me to have sexual freedom without consequences. If I'm a lost person and I am, uh, as a heterosexual, promiscuous, then I'm going to have no or little problem with homosexuals. Why? Because, you know, it's uh, comforting that we can all live in our sin together. You know, you think about it, too. Uh, I, I think of the events that are going on here in the military with this general who is you know, said to have committed adultery to which he is admitted. And the question now that's up for fire is, did he do this while he was serving on active duty? In which case, he comes under the uniform code of military conduct, which under that code... If a military, active military person is guilty of adultery, they can be discharged dishonorably from the military. Every branch, every branch. That's in written code. So how are they going to enforce that? How could they enforce that today? And again, those principles that were outlined for our military were based on God's principles, how could they enforce that if homosexuality is okay in the military? If two men or two women want to have sex with each other, how can they say then that it's wrong for someone to commit adultery? Listen, there's such inconsistency in this. But here's my point. If, if I make it purely an issue of party, then I've missed the opportunity to win people. But on the other hand, If I sit back as a pastor and do not teach the moral issues that have entered into the political realm, then I haven't done my job as a pastor. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. So when a Christian says it's okay to vote for a particular individual who's going to promote homosexuality, who's going to promote the murder of innocent children. Listen, if life starts at the moment of conception, and that's what God says, and really logic would get you there, but if that's what God says, that life begins at conception, then abortion is murder. I mean, what if we had a, a, what if we had a party where a woman had a one or a two or a three-year-old that they were tired of, and they said, this kid's in the terrible twos. I can't stand him anymore. So we bring him to an extermination clinic, and we have him compassionately put to death. You'd be coming out of your seat saying, what is our government doing? Listen, and in God's eyes, it is no different. Because conception begins a human life. 
And so in one hospital, I remember being in an open platform debate at Duke University and 100 yards from the point from where I was debating in an open speech platform, there was a hospital called Duke University Medical Center. And in that same hospital, one woman could go in six months pregnant with premature labor, and that hospital would do everything in its power to preserve the life of that baby. In that same identical hospital, a woman came in six months pregnant, and she wanted to end her pregnancy. You say, that's murder. You know, well, what do you determine that by? By viability? Um, listen, you, viability gets the ability to, to live outside of the womb with medical help and treatment gets younger and younger and younger and younger and younger. Uh, I, I have to go by the standard of Scripture. When God set me apart from my mother's womb, he didn't set apart a piece of, of, uh, of flesh. He didn't set apart what some like to call comically a shrimp. He set apart a person. Jeremiah and the Apostle Paul both use those terms. God wove us together in our mother's womb. And so for Christians not to stand up for what is right is evil. It's evil. It's wrong. It's wrong. And we now have an administration who is probably going to replace two or three Supreme Court justices. Listen, people say, well, Bush didn't do anything for life. He passed eight major pieces of federal legislation that protected human life. He accomplished a lot, and not to mention he appointed over 1,200 judges to the federal uh, bench. Our president is going to replace a lot of federal judges, and he is going to replace some Supreme Court justices. And when your pastor is carried away to jail because he is speaking against abortion and against homosexuality as an abomination, you will have your own silence to blame. So give it some thought. I'm not talking about this caller in particular. I think he's asking about I'm just talking. I'm just preaching here. I got on a soapbox. <laughs> I know that, but well, let me that's ask where you we're at. One other thing in relation to that question, um, the Bible, of course, says that the the, the leader of a congregation, the pastor, a teacher, is held to a higher standard. And uh, don't you, as a pastor, feel that you are going to be accountable for the people that were in your flock if you didn't give them that direction? Well, here's how I think the direction should be given. I don't think, I think it's unwise for a person to just get up and say, I think everyone in the congregation ought to vote for Romney, or I think everyone in the congregation ought to vote for Obama. Because then when you're dealing with an unsaved, lost world who come into that setting, they think political issues only. They do not have a a, a natural, they do not have the mind of Christ. They have an unregenerate mind. And so a natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. Their foolishness to him, he cannot comprehend them because they're spiritually appraised. A better, wiser, I think more biblical approach is for a pastor to teach the moral standards of God. And when a congregation asks and answers the question, I preached a sermon a few months ago and it's gotten thousands of uh, requests. Is it okay to be gay? And it was a 70-minute sermon, probably the longest sermon I preached this year, and it's on YouTube. If you type in Brogy, is it okay to be gay, YouTube, you can listen to it if you're interested. 
But people all over the country have written me on that sermon. And they said the fuzz has been lifted. The fog is gone. We know it's not okay to be gay. And we know that it is. it will bring the destruction of a nation. It will bring the downfall of a nation when this kind of behavior is allowed. And it always follows Ill- illicit uh, heterosexual behavior. And that's the three-stage platform in Romans 1 that I preached through in that sermon. And that's where we're, at. we're going. We're sowing the seeds of destruction. And people will not have wisdom. I mean, people vote their pocketbooks fiscally. And I'm not saying you shouldn't consider fiscal policies. There's a lot of fiscal policies. We're $16 trillion in debt, and we just borrowed $2.5 trillion, and we're running out a lot sooner than they thought by December, and the government's going to shut down unless we borrow more money. When we hit $20 trillion, it's going to be $1 trillion a year, a year in interest, and that's at the current interest rates. It is unsustainable. We are destroying this nation. We have leadership in both parties who are enacting principles that are anti-scriptural. We're spending money we don't have. And you see so many people listening to me say, oh, it's a big deal, $16 trillion in debt. So we got a lot of debt. It is a law of God. You cannot spend money that has not been worked for. And if you do, then someone, either you or someone else, is going to have to work for it. And so our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren are going to have to pay back this debt. And if we don't, then what will happen is what happened to Rwanda and Germany in the 1930s. Our money will become valueless. You go on the Internet, there's that classic picture of the guy with a whole wheelbarrow of money. And in the 1930s in Germany, it was filled with their highest marks that they had, and it could only buy a loaf of bread. That's where we're headed. Uh, right. we're, we're doing some really foolish things. Well, you brought up that message from a few weeks ago. So uh, let's take this question from Leslie in Buford, who writes, I listened to your sermon, Is It Okay to Be Gay?, and understand that the English translation of every Bible clearly speaks against homosexuality. A friend of mine is a young adult pastor of a church in Charleston, and he teaches that homosexuality is not a sin and that there was a lack of accuracy in the translation of the original text to English. He says the original words of the Old Testament were written in Hebrew, a language in which there was no word for homosexuality, and that the Old Testament was originally referring to any sexual behavior sparked by lust, and not love. He also teaches that the New Testament was written in Greek and used the word malakos, which does not mean homosexuality, but any and all sexual behavior, homosexual and heterosexual, that involves lust without love. He referenced another text in which a woman said to her young male lover, come with me, my malakos. What are your thoughts about this? Because some homosexuals do not jump in the sack immediately, but fall in love first. And usually you quote and explain the original text and its context uh, and its context in your sermon. Well, it's obvious to me that your friend knows nothing about Hebrew or Greek, and he's pontificating like he's some kind of scholar when he's not. And the statements that he made are really laughable. And even if a man was an atheist and didn't even believe in God, even if a man didn't believe the Bible to be the Word of God, but he knew Hebrew and Greek, he would know the statements that your friend has made are just totally untenable. Now, there's some half-truths in what he said. It is true that the word homosexual did not exist during the days that the Scriptures were given. But like with anything else— 
uh, words are used to describe the original Greek and Hebrew words that are used. Um, And so uh, you can use the word homosexual or you can use uh, other terminology to describe homosexual acts. But it's very clear, for God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire one toward another, men with men <clears throat> committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the dual penalty of their error. God makes it very clear this is sinful behavior. He calls it unnatural. He calls it sinful. He calls it error. He calls it depravity, indecent. I mean, he couldn't have said it any plainer. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, pull up for me, because I don't have a King James Bible for, here. Pull up for me uh, 1 Corinthians 6, uh, verses uh, 9 and 10, if you would, Rick. In the King James Version of the Bible, let me read it first out of the New American Standard. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. So just read verses 8, um, or just read verse, um, verse 9, if you will, from the King James Bible. Okay, know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves. Okay, good. Nor abusers of themselves. And the word here is translated homosexuality. The Greek word described homosexual behavior, both inside and outside of the Bible. But we didn't have the word homosexual in the 17th century. It's like sometimes people will say, well, dinosaurs aren't in the Bible because you don't find the word dinosaur anywhere. Well, the word dinosaur is a rather recent word in the broad spectrum of things. Uh, It was a word that was coined not that long ago, about 200 years ago. And so, and it comes from a Greek word that referred to a great lizard, but um, someone coined the word dinosaur. Um, so, you know, does that mean dinosaurs are not in the Bible? No, not at all. It's just that God used different words in that day to describe it. And so very clearly homosexuality is sin. It is evil. And we are no longer acknowledging it is evil. In fact, we're doing the exact opposite. Think about this now. God just said that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God, and he listed a whole set of vices, and not just homosexual sin, but he also mentioned uh, heterosexual sin, premarital and extramarital sex. And again, I can guarantee your friend's probably gay himself, and that's why he's advocating this. And if he's not gay, he's at least immoral, and for that reason, he wants to... uh, you know, endorse homosexuality as a lifestyle. But we're doing the exact opposite of what God says. And he describes such people that they have no inheritance. It's not that they're unsavable because he will say in the same chapter, and such were some of you. But God says that laws, man's law, that is to be a reflection of his law. He tells us in First Timothy chapter 1, he says that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, 
for those who kill their fathers or, or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers. God is saying that man's law is written to stop these kinds of behaviors. And notice that he puts homosexuality in there with people who murder their father and mother, with other forms of immorality, with liars and perjurers and kidnappers and so forth. So instead of writing laws that reflect God's moral values, we are writing laws against God's moral values, which is a reminder to me we are in the last of the last days. Because the coming of Christ will be like the days of Noah and the days of Lot, days of gross immorality and days of perversion. All right. Uh, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980. Our next uh, caller wants to know, are women required to wear skirts to their ankles and not pants or shorts? If not, why are some convicted to? Well, um, there is a passage here in 1 Timothy 2, and uh, I was in 1 Timothy reading about homosexuals and laws against them. He says in the next chapter, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as befits women making a claim to godliness. Uh, This is one of the great not buts of Scripture, not this but that. Now, this is a passage that has been, I think, misunderstood sometimes. He says a woman is to adorn herself with proper clothing, and it's to be modest and discreet. So those are the two principles a woman should consider as she buys her clothing. One, it should be modest And it should be discreet. In other words, it's not the kind of clothing that just dramatically calls attention to you. Um, You know, sometimes a person comes in and, man, it's shock value in terms of the way they are dressed. Uh, That's not a wise woman. Um, She should be modest and she should be discreet. Um, So he says, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly garments. And so some assume that Therefore, a woman should not braid her hair. I heard a preacher once say that there's demons that live in braids. And, you know, people can go really bizarre in some of this stuff. uh, That they shouldn't wear any jewelry or any makeup. And so it's uh, sinful to do so if you wear any kind of makeup. Uh, Peter, in the parallel text, says, And let not your adornment be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold, jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. He's uh, instructing women again, and guys, we appreciate when a woman takes care of herself. Women, we appreciate that. But on the other hand, it's not to be only external because a woman can hide behind the externals and ignore the internals. A woman could spend a lot of time on the cosmetics and the jewelry and the clothing and not give any time to the heart. And on the other hand, there are some people who, with a false sense of spirituality, they will say, well, you know, you better not wear pants. And now I'm more spiritual because I wear dresses and you wear pants. When in reality, their heart is a million miles away from the Lord. Now, it is true that sometimes dress does reflect spirituality. If a woman comes to church and her breasts are hanging out, uh, she's not a modest woman. 
uh, she may have a spirit of sensuality. Now, I'm glad she comes, not so I can look at her, so I can win her to Jesus. I want her to find Christ as her Savior. And it's amazing to me when people find the Lord and they start growing because they're in a healthy church, how their dress begins to change. But these are the people we need to win to Christ. This is our culture. This is the society that we are entrenched in. But there's not a prohibition here against the wearing of uh, braiding of hair, gold jewelry, any more than there's a prohibition for a woman to wear a dress. And in the first Timothy passage, it's a little more challenging because he says, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with this, but rather. This, again, is one of the not buts of Scripture. For instance, in John chapter 15, if I can give you another example of it, Jesus said, no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. I'm not calling you slaves, though you still are slaves. Uh, He that would be great among you must be the bondservant, the slave of all, the servant of all. Both words are used. So you're still slaves, slaves of God, but you're more than a slave. You're a friend. So he's not prohibiting a woman wearing braided hair or gold or pearls. It's, It's... Again, it's a qualified kind of thing. Some of the not buts in Scripture are comparative, but they're not exclusive, as in John 15 that we just read. Uh, the, the passage that you're referencing comes from the book of Deuteronomy. So let me just turn there because I don't have it memorized and I don't want to misread it. A woman shall not wear man's clothing, nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. This is a moral command, and that's why the phrase that this is an abomination, this is wicked behavior. What's he talking about? He's not just talking about a woman wearing pants. Remember in biblical times that pants didn't even exist. They weren't anywhere to be found. Um, you know, they came centuries after the Bible was completed. In fact, when you look at a man in a woman's clothing, there was very little difference. Difference in Bible time was more stylistic. It wasn't functional. It was more of issues of color and trim and, and size. But what he is talking about here is transvestism, which was practiced by the Canaanite people. You know what that is. And it was considered an abomination. So we talk about, you know, the LGBT community. God calls it all an abomination. Now, we are to have compassion on these people and try to win them to Jesus. Some of them are miserable, and they will repent. You think, oh, they'll never turn. They can turn, and they can be saved. And such were some of you, Paul says in 1 Corinthians six eleven. But God justified you and sanctified you. He saved you, and he's changing you. And he's still in the business of changing life. So preach the gospel this week, not just in deed, but in word. Hope you have a great day. God bless you. 